Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Rich Toward God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for August 4th, 2019. When I looked up the gospel lesson for this week, I groaned because I really, really, really don't want to write about money. I mean, who does? Money is one of those things we're not supposed to bring up in polite company. We get squirmy when people ask about it, especially when they ask in ways that challenge our lifestyles or our priorities. For all sorts of reasons, we prefer talking about Christian virtues that are safely abstract. Faith, hope, love, joy. But budgets, retirement plans, shopping habits, tithes and offerings... Those are so specific, so concrete, so private. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't care one whit about our middle-class sensibilities. So here we go. Money. A man approaches Jesus and asks him, st- uh, asks him to arbitrate a dispute he's having with his brother. Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. This is all the context we get. But the request sounds reasonable, doesn't it? After all, the guy isn't asking to inherit more than his brother. He just wants Jesus to advocate for basic fairness. But here's how Jesus responds. Take care. Be on guard against all kinds of greed. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Wait. Since when is desiring fairness the same thing as being greedy? If that's not confusing enough, Jesus keeps going, telling his listeners a parable about a rich landowner who carefully stores his wealth ahead of his retirement, only to learn that his life is about to end. You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Okay, I'm really confused now. What's wrong with planning ahead, with saving for a rainy day? with making prudent choices when it comes to wealth management. But hang on, there's still more. Jesus concludes his parable with one more warning. So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. What does that mean? What does it mean to be rich toward God? These are all hard and uncomfortable questions, and maybe the best we can do is to wrestle with them. But for me, the biggest takeaway from this week's gospel lesson is this. I need to stop assuming that my nearest and dearest concerns are also necessarily Jesus's. Like the man who seeks arbitration in the matter of his inheritance, I am a stickler for equity and fairness. Jesus isn't. Like the rich man in the parable, I tend to think that I'm entitled to do what I want with my own hard-earned money. Jesus doesn't agree. Like both men, I tend to compartmentalize my life into convenient, secular, and sacred realms such that loving my brother, or sister, or neighbor, as myself, has little bearing on my totally reasonable legal pursuits. And contemplating my mortality does not require me to compromise my 401k. Again, Jesus sees things differently. Where I see in part, Jesus sees the whole. Where I see what's pressing along the surfaces of my life, Jesus sees the depths of my heart. 
Where I obsess over the temporal, Jesus fights hard for the eternal. Jesus looks at the man embroiled in a family feud over money and sees that his obsessive need for a fair share is twisting, gnarling, and embittering his heart. In the heat of his pursuit, he's not able to discern that his inner life is in trouble. He can't see his own brother as anything more than an obstacle or a competitor. He's so concerned about possible scarcity that he doesn't even notice actual abundance, Jesus, standing right next to him. He's so single-minded about his own affairs that he has no bandwidth for the salvation Jesus offers. He reduces the Son of God to an estate lawyer. Meanwhile, Jesus looks at the rich landowner reveling in his stores of grain and sees a person drowning in self-absorption, a man enamored of his own power, a man oblivious to his own mortality. Notice the narcissism of his inner dialogue. I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. In the carefully curated narrative of a proud, self-made man, Jesus sees an isolated, insecure soul who has forgotten human connection, forgotten God's generosity and provision, forgotten that possession is not stewardship, and forgotten that in the face of death, the great equalizer, we are all naked paupers, but for the grace of God. At this point, the temptation, for me, is to retreat into abstraction, into metaphor, to say, well, this gospel lesson is not literally about money. It's about my attitude towards money. It's about my heart. It's about faith and hope and love and joy. Money itself is neither here nor there. Money itself is morally neutral. Well, yes, but also no. The squirmy fact is that Jesus talks about money and possessions more than just about any other topic. Why? Because there's something about it that distorts us, something that makes us defensive, something that makes it very hard for us to hear the gospel in its risky, scandalous, impolite, imprudent, and radical fullness something in its allure that grabs hold of us and doesn't easily let go. After all, how many of us pray, give us to stay our daily bread, and actually mean it? I don't. I've got enough bread and milk, cheese, fruit, vegetables, meat, and ice cream in my refrigerator and freezer to last for weeks. How many of us really need to take material comfort in Jesus' words about God clothing the lilies of the field? I don't. I'm forever buying clothes I don't need and hauling bags of barely worn jeans and dresses to goodwill to make myself feel better. It doesn't occur to me too often that my unwillingness to make do, to quit shopping just for fun, to use up rather than upgrade, to consider other people's needs today before I obsess over what I might need tomorrow, exacts a cost. A cost on our planet's fragile ecology, a cost on the human beings who have to manage the fallout of my thoughtless purchases, and a cost on my soul. I would like very much to backtrack at this point and say, please don't be mad. I don't mean to offend anyone. What you do with your money is entirely your own business. But I'm stuck with the fact that Jesus almost surely offended the man who approached him in this week's gospel reading. The man came with an entirely reasonable request involving money, and Jesus turned that reasonable request on its head. 
Not only did he refuse to help the man secure his inheritance from his brother, he called the guy greedy and sent him packing. Ouch. Jesus concludes his lesson with an exhortation to be rich toward God. It's a beautiful and inspiring phrase, but what does it mean? What does a heart and a lifestyle and a home and a bank account rich toward God look like? Maybe, if we can infer from the lectionary reading, it means guarding against greed instead of obsessing over fairness. Maybe it means holding our mortality closer than we want to. Maybe it means asking hard questions about what makes us feel secure or insecure. Maybe it means acknowledging that even our hard-earned, well-earned, self-earned wealth comes from God and belongs to God. Maybe it means prioritizing human interconnectedness over personal gain or asset management. Maybe it means dialoguing with God more ardently than we monologue with ourselves. Maybe it means holding human wisdom lightly, knowing that God's wisdom will always render our own foolish. In the parable Jesus tells, God confronts the rich landowner with the most chilling words. This very night, your life is being demanded of you. Are we listening? What would change about our financial lives if we really believe this? What would we do differently if we believe that God does, in fact, demand our lives from us every single day, in every single way? Because he does, doesn't he? The call to take up my cross is a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute call. Is it also a dollar-by-dollar call? If our lives have, in fact, been demanded of us, then how should we live? What should we leave behind? What should we carry forward? What should we give away? Be rich toward God. Don't shy away. Be brave and wrestle with what this invitation means, because the richness we spend on God is the only richness we'll keep in the end. For books this week, Dan reviews Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich, translated with an introduction and notes by Barry Windat. In the first few days of May of 1373, an obscure woman who called herself a simple, uneducated creature lay on her deathbed for three days and three nights. She was 30 and a half years old. On the fourth night, she received the last rites of the Catholic Church and did not expect to live until morning. On the night of May 8th, she asked to be propped up in her bed. By this time, her eyes were fixed, her lower body was numb, she could not speak, and the priest had come to preside over her death. He set a crucifix before the woman at the foot of her bed. What happened next, as they say, is history. Beginning at four in the morning and lasting well past the middle of the day, Julian of Norwich had a series of 15 visions, showings, or revelations as she gazed at the crucifix. She then had a 16th revelation on the following night that confirmed to her the authenticity of her experiences, which she was otherwise tempted to attribute to delirium. I never asked for any bodily vision, writes Julian, or any kind of revelation from God. And yet she had the audacity to believe that God had in fact spoken to her in order to benefit all humanity. Quote, I had a true and powerful perception that it was he himself who showed this to me without any intermediary. 
Soon after she recovered, Julian wrote a short summary of her revelations, which we now know as her short text, 35 pages. 20 years later, as she continued to reflect on her visions, she wrote a fuller description called The Long Text, 125 pages. Remarkably, this obscure text by an unknown woman received little attention until it was first published in 1670. Today, we remember Julian for having written the first book composed by a woman in English, Revelations of Divine Love. How she and her manuscript ever survived is both mystery and miracle. There have now been many editions of Revelations of Divine Love, but this one by Barry Windad is likely the best one in English. His translations of both the long and short texts are preceded by an excellent 40-page introduction. Julian, he says, was a profoundly original and radical thinker who wrote at length about the motherhood of God. For her, sin was, quote, nothing. Indeed, God also revealed that sin shall be no shame to man but his glory, because the love of God is infinitely greater. And however extreme our sin and suffering, nothing can separate us from the motherly love of God. Julian insisted that it was the greatest impossibility for there to be any anger of any kind in God, for, quote, he is nothing but goodness. Her book, says Windat, is a marvelous stylistic subtlety and grace that combines an unmannered rhetorical sophistication with some of the energy and fluidity of a more oral style. Writing in vernacular English, rather than the Latin of the university intellectuals or the French of the royal court, Julian's basic message was simple but radical. I was taught that love was our Lord's meaning. Endless love, blessed love, unutterable love and tender love, which has no beginning or end. How intimately he loves us, she writes. We are known and loved from without beginning. Whether falling into despair or rising in joy, we are always inestimably protected in one love. He has made everything that is made for love, and by the same love, everything is sustained and will be without end. Those are three persons of the Trinity are all equal in themselves. My soul understood love most clearly. Yes, and God wants us to consider and enjoy love in everything. And this is the knowledge of which we are most ignorant. For some of us believe that God is almighty and has power to do everything, and that he has wisdom and knows how to do everything, but that he is all love and is willing to do everything. There we stop. All shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. On the last page of her long text, she concludes, From the time these things were first revealed, I had often wanted to know what was our Lord's meaning. It was more than 15 years later that I was answered in my spirit's understanding. You would know our Lord's meaning in this thing? Know it well. Love was his meaning. Who showed it to you? Love. What did he show you? Love. Why did he show it? For love. Hold on to this and you will know and understand love more and more, but you will not know or learn anything else, ever. And so, says Julian, the greatest honor we can give God Almighty is to live gladly because of the knowledge of his love. For more on this beloved saint, see the books by Amy Freikholm, Julian of Norwich, A Contemplative Biography, and Amy Laura Hall, Laughing at the Devil, Seeing the World with Julian of Norwich. For movies this week, Dan reviews The Creative Brain. What is creativity? Where does it come from? How do we harness it and tap into the neural processes behind it? Imagination and creativity, says David Eagleman, are not the preserve of an elite few. 
but what all human brains do, as distinct from other animals. Eagleman is a neuroscientist, a New York Times bestselling author, professor at Stanford, a Guggenheim Fellow, and the writer-host of the PBS series The Brain. Humanity has radically altered our world with creativity. Creativity is not just found in the arts. Science thrives on creativity, for example. Eagleman interviews all sorts of creative types, like the architect Jark Ingalls, the former chief technology officer at Microsoft, Nathan Mervold, animator Phil Tippett, jazz musician Robert Glasper, and others. One of the most interesting segments in the film was the redemptive role that creativity can play among prisoners who take writing and pottery classes where they find a new self-identity. Imagination is a superpower that we all possess. How to be creative, dig deeper, learn a new skill, and resist the path of least resistance that our brains prefer. Second, push boundaries between the familiar and the new. And third, risk failure instead of avoiding it. I watched this one-hour science documentary on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry this week, Wendell Berry's Manifesto, The Mad Farmer Liberation Front. Love the quick profit, the annual raise, vacation with pay. Want more of everything ready-made. Be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. And you will have a window in your head. Not even your future will be a mystery anymore. Your mind will be punched in a card and shut away in a little drawer. When they want you to buy something, they will call you. When they want you to die for profit, they will let you know. So friends, every day do something that won't compute. Love the Lord. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what man has not encountered, he has not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Say that the leaves are harvested when they have rotted into the mold. Call that profit. Prophesy such returns. Put your faith in the two inches of hummus that will build under the trees every thousand years. Listen to carrion. Put your ear close and hear the faint chattering of the songs that are to come. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. So long as women do not go cheap for power, please women more than men. Ask yourself, will this satisfy a woman satisfied to bear a child? Will this disturb the sleep of a woman near to giving birth? Go with your love to the fields. Lie down in the shade. Rest your head in her lap. Swear allegiance to what is nighest in your thoughts. As soon as the generals and the politicals can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail, the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for August 4th, 2019. I'm Debbie Thomas.